Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe Asia, where we discuss the news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. In this episode, much ink has been spilt over the surprise win of Donald Trump, who will soon become the 45th President of the United States. And, ink aside, this podcast is no exception. Joining me today to look at how polarising this person will be and how he will deal with the world at large are two international relations experts who have calmed down sufficiently to sit down in front of a microphone. Professor Nick Bisley, Executive Director of La Trobe Asia, welcome to you. Hi, Matt. Dr. Kamuta Simpson, Lecturer in International Relations, welcome to you. Hi, Matt. Let's start with the global reaction to the Trump victory. Besides the obligatory congratulations that come from from country leaders, has there been any reactions that have struck you as notable? There are probably a couple of things stand out. One is the very slow, as yet I don't think it's occurred, um, congratulations from China. So there's a sort of... There hasn't been a... No. On, in fact, Xinhua tweeted out on the day, was the day after, so of Xi Jinping on the phone. But he was on the phone to a Chinese astronaut in space. <laughs> it was very deliberate. It was almost like a deliberate ploy. Yeah. So the Chinese government has been very, very low key, which is surprising because the sort of conventional wisdom had been that um, they were going to welcome a, a Trump presidency. They're like Republicans better and all that sort of guff. And, and just as a general thing, you say congratulations. Yeah. And I think this, I mean, who knows? It's what we're all guessing with this stuff, but there could be a sense in which this is an expression of Chinese superiority. Mm. We'll take our time to congratulate you. But not. you were in Macau at the time when the when the big call came. So what was the, the reaction on the ground then? Yeah, very interesting. So I was at um, an unfortunately timed conference on the South China Sea disputes in which um, the second panel was speaking whilst the results were coming through and everyone in the audience was spent <laughs> oh, their entire time looking <laughs> at the thing, in, including some pretty senior Chinese party members who are, who run significant think tanks and institutes related to the South China Sea, all of whom were very sophisticated consumers of American politics. Mm. That was the most obvious thing. Um, and the other was their sense of, on the one hand, great, Trump is, you know, this is great, America looks bad, all that sort of stuff. And then a, then a sense of, huh, what's this actually going to mean? And a real puzzle of this probably isn't as good for us as we might have mm. thought. So mm. it was one reaction. The other reaction is Japan. Shinzo Abe is on his way to Washington to meet Trump. What, or or his... possibly New York, wherever he'll be meeting him. Yeah. Um, he wants to be the first foreign leader who sits down with Trump to to um, break bread, as it were. That was my take. What do you reckon, Kamuda? I thought it was particularly interesting that uh, the I think the head of NATO came out and, and was very cautious in his congratulations, but also saying, you need us as much as we need you. So mm. just keep that in mind. And also Angela Merkel was perhaps the least enthusiastic of the European leaders. And, and again, she was very quite cautious and guarded in her her response as well. Yeah, I, th- I quite liked her response, actually, because it was uh, basically said, we will be your partners and we'll cooperate with you on the basis of shared values. Yes. And that yeah. was very clearly not just Mr. Trump, you know, you're in charge of a democracy, but the look across the shoulder to the Russians. I mean, but when you look at all the elections that have been happening around the world at the moment, though, Merkel's very much going to find herself without friends quite soon. She might have to work with the world that she's given if she's going oh, to indeed. continue. And, and um, she faces re-election. She's got to decide if she's going to run. Year. Yeah, mm. she's got to decide if she's going to run very soon her for a fourth term. If she decides to go ahead with it, her prospects will be, you know, not great. So was any uh, country in particular, though, uh, enthusiastically happy with the outcome? I mean, Japan seems to be running there to to go and meet the president-elect. But uh, do we know, like, for example, Russia, 
Putin must be quite happy with... All authoritarians everywhere are pleased. Mm. Um, one assumes the champagne was being popped in Damascus or what's left of Damascus in Syria. Putin was pleased, although not, you know, did, yeah, Putin's a kind of low-key guy full stop, so he's he's not going to be effusive. Um, I, I saw some, you know, amusing comments from on Twitter from, you know, places like Zimbabwe and the like, but I think nowhere in what you might call the liberal Western world, or in fact anywhere in the democratic world, do people look at this result and think it's a good thing because mm. it's it's a big crack in the edifice of liberal democracy when you get a guy like Trump elected. I agree, and I think it's partly that cautious response and, and potentially quite a, a horrified one. It's not just that we don't know that he's going to, you know, break apart the liberal consensus in the world but because we don't know what he's going to do it's that sense of we actually have no idea he's already reversed himself on some of his key ideas but followed through on others and to me that's the sense I got is that everybody's sort of coming out and saying well we really don't know what he's going to do Mm. in the coming months or years so we have to just play this really really carefully. One thing that he has signalled is that, and he's made a priority of his campaign, and he'll probably follow through for it, is that he's going to be putting America first in all the kind of dealings that he can. So, how do you think that that's going to to play out? I mean, th- there's a lot of ways that you can take this, but we'll look at at trade first. He signalled that he doesn't like NAFTA; that that's something that he can pull America out. And I was listening to um, shout out to Planet Money, who looked into it and said it's actually quite easy for America to pull out from if they wanted to. And then he's also signalled that TPP isn't something that he's interested in engaging with at all. And uh, despite the the pleadings of Malcolm Turnbull in a phone conversation apparently earlier this week. So how do you think that he'll rock the boat when it comes to trade? The two things you've mentioned, one is trade agreements that either the US has or or are in front of it and the extent to which he tweaks, tinkers with or pulls out of those. And he's got some latitude to do that. Although one suspects, okay, TPP is basically dead because it's it's something mm. the US hadn't ratified yet. Um, signature piece of the Obama administration, centerpiece of a pivot to Asia and all that stuff, um, but was always going to face a, a difficult life in Congress and forget it now. And I think Obama administration even said it's you know it's done and dusted. Um, so then you've got the, the agreements that the US is party to, and yes, technically it can rescind them, but it has all sorts of consequences. First of which is if you if you renege on a treaty. That has huge implications for how countries will relate to you. And the thing is, that's what Trump has form for, you know, and is you know, not stiffing his contractors and all that sort of stuff and not honouring his contracts. Um, he could do stuff, but it has all these costs. And all of that, the serried ranks of American industry who benefit from all these agreements are going to be lining up in front of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue saying, don't do this because here are the costs. Mm. Uh, and my sense is, as with a lot of Trump stuff, on those agreements, he's going to try to, he'll put a bit of lipstick on it and say, oh yeah, I've tweaked it and changed it and isn't it, it's now been Trumpified and it's okay, I've fixed it and move on and not care what anyone says. I think this has been one of the, perhaps a bit of a misconception throughout his campaign was that he, a lot of people painted him as anti-globalisation and I don't I don't think he's anti-globalisation at all. I think he's anti any trade deal that doesn't benefit America or, or his interests. And I think that's how he will approach all of these deals. It's not that free trade is bad mm. or that um, any particular deal is is going to damage the American economy. It's whether or not he 
believes or his advisors believe at the time that this is going to benefit America and make America this wonderful, great, you know, economic power again. And he's already said that that's how he will approach all these deals. Not that he'll just scrap them, but that he'll get a better one. Yeah. That seems to not be quite what the American sort of middle and blue and white collar workers seem to have taken from that message. And I think there's going to be a huge problem here when they see him probably still engaging in free trade agreements or negotiations where he thinks he can get the better end of the bargain. Uh, And the people who voted for him might start to see that, oh, actually, he's not going to bring the 1950s back and the great kind of manufacturing golden age to America that, no, it's globalisation as it was, but putting, you know, the, the interests of, of businesses first. Mm. Globalisation with Trump characteristics. There go. <laughs> but the other side of the trade coin is the threat to impose unilateral tariffs on people he believes are trade cheats or rapists, as is, as China was identified. Yeah, so China's going to get hefty tariffs opposed That's, on them. I mean, he has said... If you listen to the rhetoric. Yeah, he has said that he'll slap anything from 5 to 45% mm. tariffs. I would be absolutely astonished if this happened. Mind you, I said I'd be absolutely astonished if he won the election. So, God, don't listen to me. No, but the reason I think this is less likely than his win, which was still not very likely, um, is that the cost to America of doing this will be huge, uh, if he goes at, particularly if he goes at the sharp end of those threats. And all of those American business interests, and they are very considerable, will be bearing down on him saying, you know, don't do this. And... The people who probably suffer the most if there is a trade war with China are his supporters. I mean, this is the, this is the thing where he's he set himself up to fail in the sense that he's made all these promises he just cannot keep. Whatever he may wish to believe otherwise, he cannot bring back manufacturing jobs to Wisconsin. He cannot restructure the global economy. And 45% retaliatory tariffs on China equals trade war with China equals companies like Intel and Ford having their very significant capital investments in China nationalized by the Communist Party. And it would be catastrophic for, for the US and catastrophic for the global economy. So I think he's, you know, I, I think he's going to blink when faced with that. Mm-hmm. The other aspect, though, that he's... Uh signaled will come into the America first kind of thinking uh, is when it comes to defense contracts and the obligations that America currently has um, and whether he'll start, you know, charging money for it or just pulling out altogether. That's going to have implications for a lot of areas in in China and some in the Middle East that depend on America for defense. So what do you think could be the the fallout for that? I think he had an early conversation with the um, South Korean president saying that he would honour their alliance and that he wasn't planning on on going anywhere and, mm. and completely withdrawing American power from the region, which, again, is, is very much at odds with what he was implying. I think this is where that uncertainty comes from, is that when he's in a room with someone or when he's talking to someone directly, he seems to really want that person to like him and he engages with them quite well. He's, you know, after spending eight years claiming that Obama was a, a Muslim from Kenya, he described their 90-minute meeting in the White House as, as, you know, a great honour and that he would seek counselling from him. So Mm. I think, you know, what he says has direct consequences. I don't want to downplay the danger of of his rhetoric. But I think he's also perhaps when he sits down with some of these countries, such as Japan, such as South Korea or even the Saudis, you know, he has given indications that, oh, okay, maybe these alliances are a little bit more 
important than the way he portrayed them during his campaign. That's not to say that his rhetoric has not created great instability and that is just as dangerous and troubling uh, in the short term. I don't see him following through on those threats, though. Mm. Yeah, so the the issue is this protection racket kind of approach to foreign policy will... He wants his envelopes. Yeah, we'll we'll charge you for the defence service that we provide. Yeah. Um, It's laughable for so many different reasons. But I think the deeper point, as Camus says, is is the question of reliability of the United States. I think the prospects of the US, particularly in Asia, um, part of the world I know best, the idea of the US retreating to Hawaii and carving up the Pacific between America and China is just, I I think, literally unimaginable, Um, particularly given... The American Defense Department would not have a bar of it. You know, mm. they'd be sitting there going, "No, no, 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 freaking way!" And he is someone who, that combination of wanting to be liked plus deference to the military will equal. PACOM tells him what to do, and I, I do genuinely think this: the Pacific Command people will come in and say, "Here's what we need to do to defend American power in Asia," and he'll go, "Yeah, okay." And again, what he'll try to do is present, you know, fairly cosmetic shifts to what America's been doing and maybe some deal around payments and host nation support payments and he'll present that as a win and I've got this great deal. But the substance of what he does is is not going to change. And in fact, if anything, I think there's a risk in Asia that America's presence will become more muscular, it'll become more assertive and become more confrontational, which will then create a sort of spiral of, of competition. The deeper point, though, which I started with and wandered away from, is that what Trump represents is huge uncertainty about American politics and what American politics will produce. And so if you're in Japan, you're in Korea or Taiwan, and you're thinking out, not over the next four years, but you're thinking out the next 40 years, Mm. can we imagine America in which the security guarantee that we've come to depend upon or reliable in 40 years as it has been for the past 40 years? This is the country that gave us Trump. Is Trump the aberration or is Trump the manifestation of these deeper problems? Trump didn't happen by accident. Trump is the function of a deeply broken political system. Uh, And so if you're dependent on that country, as Japan, Korea, Taiwan, to an extent Australia is, then Trump presents you with some serious long-term questions you've got to begin to ask. Well, if I was was a leader of a country and I... Uh, well, depending on what country I am, I wouldn't exactly be loading the guns at the moment, but I would at least be checking that I know where the key to the gun cabinet is and where the bullets are kept. So is is this have a potential to maybe go towards muscle flexing and, and a, a bit of an arms race? Where do you think the, the trajectory will be? I think that just to follow up on Nick's point, and it, it leads into this, mm. is you know, it's a similar scenario in the Middle East. You have a region that is increasingly fractious and you have you know several countries that are experiencing civil war you have states like Iran and Saudi Arabia that are to all intents and purposes in a cold war and then you have Israel who is probably also watching all of this with um, varying degrees of alarm mm. and you know the fact that Trump has has claimed to absolutely fundamentally support Israel but he's also just appointed a white supremacist anti-semite as his chief strategist so these kind of really conflicting messages do lead into that or add to that deep uncertainty and insecurity. However, Trump is also, you know, he's a, a nationalist, he's bombastic, and I wouldn't be surprised if if there is a threat to what he sees as American interests or a slight against him. He would, I think, react in a much more muscular or, or aggressive way, which is worrying as well. But in terms of that long-term trajectory, I think 
it is quite worrying that, you know, the people who voted for Trump weren't voting on the continuance of NATO. They weren't even really rejecting NATO. They What they were voting on in terms of foreign policy was very much this America first idea that we we don't care what's going on in the rest of the world. Why are we spending all this money and effort defending people in parts of the world we don't know when we have all these problems at home and I haven't had a job and my children might not have get a job and the cost of living is skyrocketing but wages have stagnated. And that's the long-term trend that could see America increasingly justify withdrawing from the world. And that that's what I think allies would be looking at with a lot of concern. Yeah, it's that what the hell are we doing? spending billions and billions of dollars putting 75,000 troops and aircraft carriers in Asia. Mm. What the hell, when I, you know, the metaphorical I is, can't get a job, my kids can't get a job, there's, you know, heroin addiction, meth addiction, these communities that are ravaged. And I think one of Obama's foreign policy failings has been a complete failure to explain American foreign policy at home. That's to say why America should be doing this, what benefits get America gets from it, what the world benefits from it. It's just a given. And I think that's the sort of deeper malaise that's behind Trump is a disconnect between how the elites see the world and the way they understand the kind of place America should play, the kind of cost it should bear and the benefits that it gets from it. That's just never explained in any way. You know, the only domestic speeches, the only speeches Obama has given about America's Asia policy have been in Australia. And that's that's a big problem, and and if that continues, and I suspect it will. I mean, I don't think I don't think Trump has got the kind of political courage or vision either to become isolationist or to explain what he's doing. You'll get a kind of ad hoc continuity with with sharp edges, and that gap that's going to open up between what particularly a hurting lower middle class thinks about America and the world and what America is actually doing. That's going to be the fissure that you know if you're sitting in the blue house in Korea or the cabinet secretary's office in Tokyo would be keeping you up at night. So a lot of foreign policy is generally done on reactionary efforts. So a world event happens, we're going to have to do a response to that. So when you've got somebody like Trump, and and this is this comes down to the whole you know finger on the red button kind of problem that we've got here, that's leading to a lot of uncertainty and un, and uncomfortable feelings in the world. Having that kind of prospect, are you guys seeing a lot of worry out there? when it comes to the kind of unpredictable nature that Trump can bring to the presidency? I think that that unpredictability that we've already talked about combined with, you know, if you think back to when George W. Bush was elected and there were lots of people who were saying, you know, he campaigned on this really isolationist foreign policy mm. and there were people very worried at the time for exactly that reason. Is America kind of withdrawing from its commitments in Europe and, and Asia? And yet... It was very easy to look at his entire foreign policy staff and his advisers and say, well, these were people who were around during the Bush senior administration, during Clinton, all the way back to Reagan and, and Nixon. And because of that, we could see, okay, but at least there is a continuity in terms of American foreign policy establishment, mm. that we know that the advice he's going to be getting is in line with what's been going on for decades. So we have some idea of, of what the, the discourse and those conversations would be. We have no idea what that discourse or advice will be anymore because the security and defence establishment in Washington have largely thrown up their hands and said, we don't want to work with him. Hmm. And the people he's already appointed are, well, they're a, a mixed bag of, you know, racist, isolationist, far right wing 
people that we just, you know, it's very hard to see. And his children. That's a very Saddam Hussein kind of move. He can't, he can't appoint any family members to government jobs. It's been illegal since 1967. So yeah. I have no fear. Ivanka won't be Secretary of State. Um, <laughs> you know, but actually, it, she probably wouldn't be a bad Secretary of State in comparison to John Bolton or some of the, some of the other names you hear. I might strike a slightly different note from Kamuda because I think, yes, there's this 150 Republican staffers who said, I won't work with this guy. I reckon 50% of them will go. They'll turn around yeah. and come well, back. Well, it's my patriotic duty to <laughs> yeah. do it. I can tame this guy. And that's what I reckon there'll be quite a few people eating humble pie, even though he's a pretty vindictive guy. But there's some pretty establishmenty figures who have not come out against him. So Richard Haas, the chairman of the Council of Foreign Relations, and doesn't get any more establishment. That has, hasn't come out against him. Um, Stephen Hadley, who was George W. Bush's national security advisor, hasn't come out against him. Um, there's a few people out there. The American Enterprise Institute's filled with, you know, they're, they're pretty right-wing in the American political context, but they still operate within the parameters of the norm. And there's like 4,000 jobs he's got to appoint. Yeah. There's only so many people he knows. Who he has in his immediate staff, that's where the uncertainty is. And, and I'll get to what, what keeps me up at night about Trump in a second. But I think at the at the sort of operational level, there's a pretty good chance you'll get a not too far from a run-of-the-mill right-wing conservative mm. government. And there's a bit of a flavor of 2004 about the whole thing. You know, Rudy Giuliani, Chris Christie, Newt Gingrich. You know, this is the sort of GOP retreads, the Team B GOP retreads. So there's not a... John Bolton. And John Bolton. You know, this is, there's a sort of out, slightly out-of-date feel. And in fact, a lot of Trump's instincts are from the 90s. You know, currency manipulation will get Japan. I mean, he names Japan as, a, as an economic risk to the US, which is sort of 1980s stuff. So I think from that level, my sense is that the mundane reality of, this, of Washington will, and the inertia of, of the establishment approach of a fairly right-wing kind. Mm. So if you, if you didn't like the George W. Bush first administration... You're going to hate the Trump administration, but it's going to look, I think, not dissimilar to that. But what worries me about Trump and the un- where the uncertainty is, is if there's a shock, if something happens to which a, a rapid immediate response is necessary, in which he feels threatened, slighted in mm. some way, insulted, you know, hold on to your hats. I mean, I mean imagine... September 11th happens under a Trump presidency. He will holler, you're fired, as he well, hits the button. The thing is, yeah. what? and if you're a terrorist, it's going to sound fairly awful, but if you're a terrorist type person, if you're a, an ISIS or an Al-Qaeda type, whose modus operandi is to attack in violent, nasty ways, precisely to discombobulate the government, to make them do dumb things, because that's what September 11th was intended to do, and boy, did it work. Under Trump, you're going to get that times 10. So mm. he's rubbing your hands with glee if you're a... If you're a terrorist type operative who's out to threaten America and make it take ill-judged heat of the moment steps, because that's where I think the Trump presidency will be at its most dangerous. It's those completely unpredictable, unexpected events that that are the most damaging. Because looking at the sort of slow-moving geopolitical tensions in, say, the Middle East or in in Asia or or various other crises. They tend to happen at a slower rate, so there's time to react to them. There's lots of experts who can weigh in, and there's policy that's already been established. But you're right, it's those sort of one in a million years events that seem to be happening with alarming frequency that require that fast thinking Mm. and, and require someone who can assess a lot of information very quickly and then come to a a kind of reasonable conclusion that, yeah, that's a really, really worrying and a likely possibility. So very worrying, very unpredictable. Will we see some sort of pivot, whether it's willingly or not, away from 
America then, do you think, as, as far as the global world order kind of shakes up, whether it be to China or to Europe? It'll partly depend on what places like China and Russia do. Does China sit there and go, ooh, here's an opportunity to significantly increase our interests and influence mm. by looking at wobbling countries and bring them into the fold? Or do they just sit back and say, let's let's just play the long game, which is essentially how China's run its foreign policy for 30 or 40 years, which is it's a time is on our side, things will eventually come our way and don't take unnecessary risks. The South China Sea island building being the notable exception to that and, and controversial for precisely those reasons. Does Russia sit there and go, aha, Ukraine is ours. We can recreate essentially the Soviet Union geopolitically because America is not going to take action. So, you know, if you're in Estonia or if you're in Kiev, you know, now's the time to get worried. So I don't think the US is going to be replaced, partly because I don't think that Russia or China has either the mood or the the finances to be an alternate America. Mm. question is whether the junior partners of the American uh, American allies and, and the liberal Western world order are capable of stepping up to look after themselves or to work more with each other. And at the moment, I doubt it. You know, I think we're in for a pretty uncertain period because I, I don't see obvious alternatives to where things are at. I think there's also another big unknown here, which is the effect that climate change will have on mm. all sorts of systems that so far have relied on US leadership or that stable world order that kind of means that nobody invades other people, nobody engages in retaliatory or restrictionist trade behaviour. And we've already seen extreme weather events that can completely alter the the price of of food staples that then lead to food shortages and riots in various parts of the world. You're going to see increased competition over, you know, food and water and arable land. And to me, it's also those things that will, you know, really, really place extreme pressure on on countries that could lead to conflict, but it's also going to impact America. And if America can't lead in or guarantee, you know, open shipping lanes or help producer states like Saudi Arabia to, to regulate the price of oil, then to me it's those kind of unknown systems that, that could create a really a positive feedback loop in the sense that, you know, everything kind of starts to fall apart. With Trump's lack of political experience and his more familiarity with being a chairman of the board, what can we expect for his leadership style? My instinct says he's going to have a chaotic presidency because his eye's not going to be on the ball and there'll be huge infighting in his immediate clique, particularly between his family and his advisors, like the Breitbart mm. people and the family will begin to fight and all of that. You know, this guy has never done anything like it before. These people have no idea the scale of the task they're up against. I think there'll be huge turnover at the kind of cabinet secretary level and the ones below it because they'll sit there and go, I can't deal with this guy. He won't answer my emails. I can't get decisions. He'll start by delegating, I reckon, like Pence, you're really in President charge. You're Pence. the CEO. Yep. I'm, the, I'm the chairman of the board. And every now and then he'll weigh in on something and say, no, 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 no. And he'll be, you know, like the... He'll be the chairman. He'll be the chairman. But he'll be the chairman who says, turn the lights off at 5 p.m. Everyone's got to turn the lights off at 5 p.m. and goes crazy about it, you know, picks an issue. And that plus the populist dilemma, which is how can you be a president and a populist at the same time, which you can't, just dashed expectations. All these people who voted for him will not vote for him again. Mm. I think that's almost the more worrying long-term trend is if you look at the, the uncertainty this is created in amongst allies and, and even adversaries, I think that what Trump has done is he has tapped into a sort of ethno-nationalist and, and isolationist 
trend within America mm. and that's not going anywhere. Trump will he will either get bored or he'll be impeached or he will massively break things so much that he doesn't get voted back in. But what he's done is he's enabled this whole kind of layer of officials and people just below him who will step in and and take that isolationist and and or or at least their kind of America first line. And they are people who are they're smarter than him and they're far more disciplined than yeah. he is. And that's very worrying. Yeah, I, I think I, I think that's absolutely right. And I reckon there's a the GOP right now looks super strong because it's got both houses of um, Congress and the presidency, but it's a GOP in name only. You know, these are wildly differing factions with a, a red T-shirt that covers these huge things. And the, the the big gap that's opened up, I think, that's not visible yet, but will become really visible really quickly, is between those isolationist America first types and the conservative but kind of liberal world order-y types. And Trump represents, as an individual, his instincts are the America firsters, but he hasn't got the discipline or the focus to, to push it. But that, for the first time, and I genuinely think it's a, it, the Trump election is an epochal moment, not because he will bring about the big changes, but because he represents, for the first time ever, someone in the White House who has doubts about the core principles of Amer- America's role in the world. You know, he doubts... The liberal trading order. He's an instinctive mercantilist. He likes trade, but it's a businessy, it's a mercantilisty approach. I think he doubts the American contribution to a stable global balance of power, and he doubts human rights and democratization. And we've never seen a presidency in the United States since 1945 that has ever doubted any one of those three things is anything other than an absolute good for mm. everyone, including America. He's the beginning of a big change. All right, that's it today for the Latrobe Asia podcast. I, for one, welcome our new insect overlords. Professor Nick Beasley, thank you for your time today. Thanks, Matt. Dr. Kamita Simpson, thank you for your time today. Thanks, Matt. You can follow Nick Bisley on Twitter. He's at Nick Bisley. You can follow Kamita Simpson on Twitter. She's at Kamuda Simpson. That's K-U-M-U-D-A. You can follow myself on Twitter. I'm at Nightlight Guy. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it on iTunes and SoundCloud. Please leave a review because reviews make us happy. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.